Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at a passage in that chapter. We want everybody to be able to look in God's Word as we do. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. So if you need a Bible, get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. It's marked at Matthew 7. You can keep that Bible as well. It's our gift to you because we want everybody not only to be able to follow along today, but to own a copy of God's Word for every day. Matthew chapter 7. The saying, desperate times call for desperate measures, has been variously attributed to Hippocrates, to Erasmus, to Shakespeare. In all of the various versions, the desperation has to do with physical illness. The ancient Greek physician Hippocrates, the Hippocratic Oath is named after him, he's believed to have said, For extreme diseases, extreme methods of cure are most suitable. Erasmus is alleged to have said, A strong disease requires a strong medicine. And Shakespeare's Hamlet says, Diseases desperate grown, by desperate alliances are relieved, or not at all. Now in our several months study in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has created a kind of desperation for us. But it's not a desperation caused by physical illness, but rather it's due to spiritual inability. He's told us in chapter 5 that we are spiritually bankrupt. As he began this sermon, you may remember way back in chapter 5 and verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. He then went on to show how deep our spiritual impoverishment is by telling us that our sin is not only in what we do, but it's in what we imagine as well. He said in chapter 5, You have heard it said, You shall not murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. He went on to say, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He then goes on to say at the end of chapter 5 that we're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. In chapter 6, he warns of the ever-present temptation to religious hypocrisy and also the idolatry of material possessions. He says in chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And then he warns of the companion to materialism, Worry. Why do you worry about what you will eat or what you will wear? In chapter 7, we saw last week that Jesus forbids becoming judgmental toward others when we make some progress toward the lofty ideals that He set for us. Do not judge, He says, chapter 7 and verse 1. So you're spiritually bankrupt. Your sin extends beyond what you do to what you think about doing. Your standard is perfection because the standard is a holy God. You cannot hide what you are behind religious hypocrisy because I, God, know you completely and I see all, even your motivations. You chase lesser gods like material things. And the fact that you worry shows your heart's tendency to wander from me. And when you do make progress, rather than rejoicing and gratitude, you're prone to condemn and judge others. So after all of that, what are we to do? 
How can we who fit this desperate spiritual profile make any true progress at all? And in chapter 7 and verse 7, Jesus says this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. I say it this way in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to pull that out. And I say, first of all, from this passage, that Jesus is teaching us that spiritual growth requires dependence. Spiritual growth requires dependence. Now, I'll explain that in a bit. But for now, let's express our dependence on the Lord this morning as we pray. Our Father, once again, we come before your throne, and we do so acknowledging our complete dependence on you. We are dependent upon you for the salvation that we enjoy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're dependent on you for any measure of progress that we make in being conformed to the image of our Christ. And so we ask you today, dependent as we are, to help us as we look at your word, grant us clarity of mind and open hearts so that we can become more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, I have <clears throat> I've, I've set our passage that we're going to consider in chapter 7 in the context of the overall message of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's necessary because, as the saying goes, a text without a context is a pretext. If we're going to understand any passage in the Bible, we have to always put it in its context. Otherwise, we will isolate that particular passage and then misinterpret it. And certainly, that has been done with this particular passage over the years. Verse 7 again, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Now, the context of that, as I have outlined, is our spiritual, our need for spiritual enablement because of our spiritual inability. But many have interpreted this to mean that I can ask for anything I want and God's promised to give it to me. But God, friends, has not promised to give us anything we selfishly want. In the many passages where God makes promises to grant our requests, those are always qualified. Those promises are always qualified. I'm going to bounce through a number of those just so that you understand. God has not given us carte blanche to ask for anything we selfishly desire and then obligated himself to give it. Now, why do I say that? When Jesus met with his first followers the night before he died, John chapters 13 through 18, all of those chapters, all six of those chapters, are all, all take place the night before Jesus died. And in chapter 14 of John, Jesus said this to them, I will do whatever you ask. You may ask me for anything, and I will do it. Now, if that was all Jesus said, then indeed we would have this carte blanche, ask what you want, Jesus is now obligated himself to give it. But that's not all he said. Jesus actually said this, I will do whatever you ask, notice, in my name. So that, here's the purpose, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, notice the qualifier, in my name. Notice the purpose, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
It is because of this and other passages that when we pray, we most often say at the end of our prayer something like, in Jesus' name or in Christ's name. And to say that means, to say in Jesus' name means that I am praying with Jesus' priorities and Jesus' values in mind. So that what I'm praying for, I am praying for in the context of what Jesus desires to see happen. Mostly to see Himself glorified and us conformed to His image. In an excellent book by Brian Chappell called Praying Backwards. It's the name of the book, Praying Backwards. He says in that book that we should actually think about our prayers starting in Jesus' name rather than just ending in Jesus' name. Because that way it puts our prayers in the context now of Jesus' priorities and values. Jesus says, you ask in my name. Then elsewhere, the Bible says this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of Him. But again, as by now you may have expected, that's not the complete verse. You see the ellipsis there, the dot, dot, dot? I've left something out. And here's something that's left out. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So again now there's the the qualifier that we ask, but we ask not for our selfish desires, but rather according to what He has told us is His will. Some of us are fond of uh, quoting Psalm 37 and, and verse 4. It's a marvelous verse that says in part this, He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, if that meant my selfish desires without any qualification, just make your list. He's obligated to give it to you. He will give you the desires of your heart. But again, notice the full verse. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. As you delight in the Lord now, that transforms your desires so that your desires become what delights Him rather than our selfish list. Sometimes we'll quote James chapter 4 that says, You do not have because you do not ask God. And again, out of context, we will quote that to say, If you want something, you don't have it because you don't ask. So simply ask for whatever that something is. But James goes on to say in the very next verse, When you ask, you do not receive. Here's why. You ask with wrong motives. Here are the wrong motives. You want to spend what you get on your pleasures. Do you see, friends, it's not my selfish list. It is rather in Jesus' name. It is rather according to your will. It is rather delight yourself in the Lord. It is rather that my motivation is not for my own pleasures, but rather for God's glory. And then I pray... And God says, I will grant those kinds of requests. And that's what we have in Matthew chapter 7. If you want to see your prayers transformed, transformed from the selfish list that most of us put together, this is what I want, into praying in Jesus' name and according to His will, here's one suggestion for you. Look at the prayers that are recorded in Scripture. The prayers in particular of the great Apostle Paul in your New Testament. I have an excellent book on my shelf called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And the subtitle is Priorities from the Prayers of Paul. That book takes all of the prayers that Paul records that he prayed for other Christians 
and then it sets them in their, in their context. Now, I'm going to bounce through some of those six prayers that Paul has recorded in his letters that he would go to the Lord on behalf of God's people for. And I want you to see the kind of priorities that he had as he prayed in Jesus' name and according to God's will. 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, We constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire, notice your every desire for goodness, and your every deed prompted by faith. He says in the next verse, We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 3 of that book, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. And then the next verse says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Got a few more of these, but do you, do you get the idea that these are spiritual priorities? that Paul's praying for on behalf of others? He says in Colossians 1, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. Philippians 1, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Ephesians 1, I keep asking God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you. And then lastly, Ephesians 3, I pray that you may have power to grasp how wide and long, high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. My. Now, friends, isn't it convicting, as you go through that litany, to compare what it is that Paul prayed for to our prayer list? When I say our prayer list, I mean our church prayer list, even. Now, we've been privileged to pray. In fact, at the end of our time today, I'm going to pray for a brother who's going into surgery this morning. We've been privileged to pray for Christy's mom. And God has granted graciously the lung transplant that she so desperately needed. We thank God for that. We want to pray for those kinds of things. Friends, when we only pray for physical things, when we only pray for the stuff we want, and our prayers and their priorities are far removed from the priorities given in Scripture, we need to reconsider how we structure our prayers. What we want and what we need are unfortunately not the same thing. We want lesser things, and this is reflected in what we ask for in our prayers. And Jesus has so outlined this Sermon on the Mount to make us desperate for what we really need. And if we want it, and we recognize our inability to obtain it ourselves, then we are left with but one choice. Ask the one who alone can provide what we need. And that's why in chapter 7 and verse 7 he says, Ask, and you will receive. But ask for that stuff and you will receive. I remember in the fall of 1980 when I was registering for my first year of college. 
Now, this was before registration was computerized, and now it can be done in the convenience of your home. I'm amazed when I watch Lainey, my daughter, register. Not only amazed, I'm mad. Because it's easy for her, and it was really hard for, for me and us. We had to go to the college field house, and the field house had an entire wall that was full of a listing of all of that semester's classes. And in the gymnasium, there were tables set up for each class, and you waited in line to get registered for each individual class. And if while you were in line, a particular class filled up, then there would be an announcement made on the speaker, and then there would be a guy on a ladder who would go up to where that one's listed on the wall, and he'd put a red tag next to it, indicating that class is now full, which would then result in a shuffling of people from that table now to another table trying to get into a different class. Now, if after all was said and done, you didn't get the classes or the schedule you needed, you had one and only one recourse. Go to the professor and beg him to let you in. He or she had that discretion, but they held the key to whether you got in the class. You were powerless apart from the professor. But if you wanted it bad enough, you'd go and you'd ask. Now, with regard to that professor, there's no promise, ask and you will receive. But Jesus says here, if you want what I'm telling you you need, you ask and you will receive. Spiritual growth requires dependence. And I say in your outline then, it requires petition. It requires petition. That is, as Jesus says in verse 7, it requires that we ask. Ask and it will be given to you. So verbalizing, asking, saying the words, Lord, this is what I need. This is what I cannot do. This is the sin that I struggle with. These are the hurdles in my life that must be overcome. And Lord, I am completely <clears throat> dependent on you for victory in these areas. And there is internal transformation that occurs simply in the sincere, honest act of verbalizing, of asking. You see, I cannot truly come to the Lord, bow my head before Him, and ask Him for these things without a transformation of desire happening within me. Lord, I want to discard this. I want to be rid of this. I want every obstacle that keeps me from moving closer to you to be removed. I remember some years ago, a couple contacting me, an emergency contact. I had met with this couple in the past <clears throat> about their marriage, but they contacted me and they said, it's over. We're done. That's it. I said, will you meet with me? I convinced them to meet with me. So I met with them that afternoon and you can believe that I was praying. And I'm asking the Lord, Lord, I'm dependent on you. And I met with this couple that's a professing Christian couple, and yet here's a couple saying, we are going to violate, we are going to violate what God says by divorcing. They had no biblical grounds. There are biblical grounds for divorce. They did, neither of them had it. And I asked them that just to make that very clear. Let, let's be clear, you have no biblical grounds for divorce. They acknowledge that. But they're still going to move ahead with it. And then I said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out into your car and I want you to say out loud, 
to the Lord, Lord, I care more about my personal happiness than your holiness. I want you to say that out loud. And they looked at me as if dumbfounded. Well, you know we can't say that. I said, that's what I was hoping. I was hoping you couldn't say that. Now, you're talking about doing that. But I don't believe that you will be able to, before the throne of God, say, God, I care more about my personal happiness than your holiness. And God used that confrontation to keep that couple together. Because they recognized that verbalizing requires an honesty of motivation. And they couldn't honestly say that. And so when I come and I ask God, God, I want to be rid of this thing. There's an internal transformation in the verbalizing of those requests with one who knows and is a child of God. Spiritual growth requires dependence. And that dependence is expressed in asking God. But I say in your outline as well, It not only requires petition, but it requires action. It requires action. Verse 7 says, seek and you will find. So when Jesus says seek, why doesn't he just say ask and leave it at that? It's because he's moved now from verbalizing to actually taking some action. Seek and you will find. This moves us from simply asking to taking advantage of the resources that God has provided around us. And what are those resources? You have the privilege of sitting in a room that is operated by Community Bible Church. Community Bible Church, whose slogan is, the family of God built on the Word of God to the glory of God. Community Bible Church built on the Word of God. Now, if this church in any way, shape, or form approximates what its name implies and what that slogan says that we are built on the Word of God, then then hear me, friends. I don't mind saying this. You are privileged to be where you are right now. Not because of me, but because of God's grace, that God in His grace has given us these resources in His Word and in the wisdom of others through materials that have been provided and through the wisdom of brothers and sisters that you are seated next to where iron can be sharpened by iron, and you can grow. Seek, and you will find. But do not think that you can have all of that privilege around you. Ignore it. Not avail yourself of community institute. Now, people have to work. People can't make it. I get that, so I'm not berating you. I'm simply saying you have these things available to you. We have an insert today to register for courses that you can take to learn God's Word. Why do we do that? Because every last one of us needs that desperately. Community Institute. Or let me remind you of something that if you, most of you have been through our newcomer's orientation, and we're starting that four-week orientation again today. We do it periodically throughout the year for those that are new to tell you about our church and what it offers you to help you grow. Most of you have been through that already. If you haven't been, I encourage you to stick around for the second hour for that and for these next four weeks. But in that course, I go through the various ministries that that we offer. One of those is called Growth Partners. Growth Partners, as I explained then, is a one-on-one ministry. It is a woman paired with another woman, a man with another man. They take up to a year together to meet every week or every other week 
to read passage of Scripture together, to read a chapter out of a Christian book, to come together and discuss what they've learned, the burdens that are going on in their life, to pray together. And through that process of iron sharpening iron, a way for you to grow. Seek, take action, and you will find, says Jesus. Spiritual growth requires dependence. And that dependence is expressed in petitioning God, asking Him, but also in taking action. But then I say in your outline, it requires resolution. It requires petition, and it requires action, and it requires resolution. Verse 7, again, knock, and the door will be opened to you. So Jesus goes from asking, verbalizing, to taking action, seeking, and now he says knock. And each one of these verbs that's translated ask and seek and knock, each one of them, is written in a way in the, the Greek language to suggest a continuing action. Every one of them is something that I'm regularly doing, asking and seeking and knocking. And now here knocking, the idea is of persisting in our pursuit of spiritual growth. You ask, you pursue resources, and you keep at it like someone who's continually knocking on a closed door until it's open. Luke has a version of what Jesus has taught, uh, a portion of what Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, he gives the disciples' prayer that we saw in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 6. And there in that chapter as well, he has the very same verse as in verse 7, word for word in Luke chapter 11, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened to you. But in Luke 11, it's preceded by a story, some of you may remember reading that, A story about the persistence of a friend who had an unexpected guest come to his home. So a guest showed up at his home and now he has someone to, he has to bed for the night and he also has to feed. And he realizes he doesn't have enough food. So he goes to his neighbor and he knocks on the door at midnight, Jesus says. And he says, I need this food for this this friend. And he knocks and he continues to knock. Now, one of the features of that story is This friend to whom he's going is the only game in town. This is the only place I can go. It's not our day when you jump in the car at midnight and Meyer's open 24 hours. It's your neighbor. And so I go to the only one who can help me, and since you're the only one who can help me, I will persist until you do. Recently, you probably have watched, as I did, It's a Wonderful Life for the 132nd time in your life. And do you all remember the desperation of George Bailey when $8,000 has been misplaced? They're going to go under. He doesn't know what's happened to it. Crazy Uncle Billy has misplaced it. They can't retrace the steps. They don't know what to do. And now in desperation, he goes to the only person in town who could possibly help him. And he has to grovel back to to Potter and beg him for help. And of course, Potter's not only unwilling to help, the only thing he's willing to do is call the police and put out a warrant for his arrest. We need to ask the question as we do in the song before the sermon each week, where else can I go, Lord? The answer is nowhere else. You're the only one. 
He has a monopoly on the help. And sometimes when people have a monopoly on the help, then, well, always when they have a monopoly on the help, it creates a desperation, and that desperation creates persistence in, in asking. I remember my first job in computer programming in my early, early 20s. And as I worked this job at this first firm, and I did that computer work for 20 years, some of you know. But in that very first job, I was trying to learn uh, about programming in the business context, not just in the academic context. And I would go and I would ask for help from other programmers there in the firm. They were the only people I could go to. They were the only game in town. Very often, like Potter, they were unwilling to help. Hear this. Unlike Potter, unlike competitive employees in a work environment, God says, you knock and it will be opened. Because God desires to give you what you ask when you pray according to my will and in my name and ask for these things. And that's why I say this in your outline. Spiritual growth requires, yes, dependence, but now secondly, it requires confidence. Confidence. Verse 8. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now notice the word for. For. So verse 7 says, ask, seek, and knock. Why? Here's why, verse 8. For, because. Those who ask for this stuff, those who seek this stuff, those who knock for these things, they will be answered. That asking and seeking and knocking will bear fruit. The Bible does give promises like that. If you ask for these kinds of things, I will grant them to you. James chapter 1 and verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, do you remember biblically what wisdom is? Wisdom is the application of what we know. Foolishness is the failure to apply what we know. So wisdom is applying what we know. Well, there's so much, isn't there, friends, that we know that we're to do and that we're to avoid. But we lack the application of that in our daily lives. If any of you lacks that, ask God. And it will be given to you. Now, why is that the case? Jesus tells us in verse 9. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Now, Jesus gives this absurd illustration. You have a son going to a father, and the son asks for bread, and you give him uh, a stone that looks like a loaf of bread, but it's, it's actually a rock, or a fish, and you give him a, a snake. Well, obviously that's absurd, and Jesus is saying, if that's the case with you who are sinful, how much more will your holy heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask for these good things of Him? Jesus is giving here what's called an a fortiori, a fortiori, that's a Latin word, 
an a fortiori argument. That means making an argument from the lesser to the greater. And Jesus is fond of doing that kind of thing. If this is what happens in the less important instance, if these lesser people do this, then how much more will it happen in the greater situation and involving the greater person, the Lord himself, says Jesus. An example of that is at the end of chapter 6, where Jesus says, don't worry. And he says, remember the birds of the air, how your father takes care of them. He says, do you remember the flowers of the field? Are you not much more important than they? So the argument from the lesser to the greater, if he takes care of that, how much more will he take care of you? So when you come with confidence, you come with confidence because of the kind of God you're coming to. You're not coming to a professor who doesn't want too many guys in his class. You're not coming to a competitive employee asking for help on the job. You are coming to your heavenly Father who desires to give good gifts. He says of himself in Isaiah 49, in the first part of your Bible, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? And the rhetorical question is to be answered, well, no. Normally that's not the case. But then it says, though she may forget. Unnatural though it is, sinful beings sometimes do that. But though she may forget, I will not forget you. Now I want you to just see, friends, how far removed the greater is from the lesser of what Jesus has said here. He gives this illustration of a son coming to a father and asking for bread or asking for a fish. And Jesus says, if you do that, how much more? How much more? I want you to see just how much more. And here's how I want you to see it. Remember I said that Luke chapter 11, Luke records some of the same teaching of Jesus on prayer that we find in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, in that story about the son coming to the father and asking for bread and asking for a fish, Here's what Luke says about that. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give? Now, let me stop there. Do you remember what, can you see what it says in Matthew 7? It says, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? But Luke says, how much more will your Father in heaven not give good gifts Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Now, why does He do that? <laughs> Look, I know some things that I should ask for. I, I, God's Word is full of a long list of things that are God's will and in Jesus' name and according to His will that I should ask for, for my spiritual growth. That could keep me busy in praying for the rest of my life. But then there are good things that I don't even know to ask for. There are the things I know, and there are all kinds of things that I need for my spiritual growth. There are all kinds of things I don't know to ask for. But guess who does know precisely what I need to ask for? God the Holy Spirit. And this is what Romans chapter 8 says. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. 
So what Jesus says is, these are the things that I am telling you that you desperately need. And there is one and one person only for you to go to to get that. So ask and seek and knock. You ask for these good things and they will be given. And how much more is there for you to be given that you don't even know about? But God the Holy Spirit does. And He will take those prayers and translate them into our needs, not our selfish wants, our spiritual needs for us. Now, why do I have to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking and beating on the door? Is it because God likes to play a game and say, you know, I like to see you groveling? It's not that. I'm constantly asking and seeking and knocking. Here's why I hear this. Because I am constantly in need. The reason this is to be constant is because I constantly need God's spiritual help. So spiritual growth requires dependence, and it requires confidence. And lastly, in your outline, it requires obedience. Dependence, confidence, obedience. Now, why do I say obedience? Verse 12. So, in everything. Now, notice the word so, the NIV says, so, as a result of this, that's why the word so there, in conclusion, because of everything that's just been said in verses 7 through 11, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. So give me just a few moments, and we're almost done, and I will explain. What's the connection between what we call normally call the golden rule, do to others as you would have them to do unto you? What's the connection between that and us trying to measure up to these spiritual ideals that Jesus has laid out in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, the connection is is this. One, if you were to go back to chapter 5 and verse 17, chapter 5 and verse 17, just take a look back there. Jesus said there, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now from that point on where he talks about the law and the prophets, that is the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish that, but here's how it's to be fulfilled. And in everything we've been looking at now in the Sermon on the Mount, he's been talking about this is how you fulfill that. And now here in verse 12, it's what's called an inclusio. You have the beginning in chapter 5 and verse 17 and the end of that now in verse 12 of chapter 7. And that's why he mentions then once again the law and the prophets. So in everything, do to others what you would have them to do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. So Jesus is saying, I just went through all of this stuff with you and you've come away dashed, spiritually bankrupt, and you're saying, Lord, I can't do it. And he's saying, you're right, you can't. So ask and seek and knock. But if you want a summary of what you're to be about and what you're to be doing, it is this. To do unto others as you would have them to do to you, or to put it in the way that Jesus said elsewhere, love your neighbor, what? As yourself. Now, why is loving your neighbor as yourself, doing unto others as you would have them to do, the summary of the law and the prophets? I thought actually there was a first and greater commandment than that. 
And in fact, Jesus said that in Matthew 22. Notice, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So now, why is Jesus saying in Matthew 7 and verse 12 that doing unto others, loving your neighbor as yourself, sums up everything? How can he say that? The same way that Paul does in Galatians chapter 5. Here's what he says. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. How? How is it love your neighbor as yourself rather than love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul? Here's how. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself unless you first love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. That first and greatest commandment is assumed and is prior to and is absolutely necessary for fulfillment of what we call the golden rule or loving your neighbor as yourself. So friend, you say, man, I need so much spiritual help. You ask, you seek, you knock as we've outlined. But meanwhile, you think about what God wants you to do. You think about what's in the best interest of others. You do that and you'll be moving forward in your spiritual walk as you continue to ask and seek and knock. Now, there's such a list of things that other people need from you. Let me just say, if you don't know, if you're not getting to know people in this church, you are failing yourself and you are failing them. You hear that? Because doing to others, loving your neighbors yourself means I've got to know those neighbors, to know who they are and know what they need. So many of you could start right there. I'm going to stop being isolated in my walk with God and I'm going to integrate myself into the family of God. And we offer numerous ways for you to do that. We're going to end this sermon in just a moment. And all God's people said... When we do, we're going to have a coffee time and a bagel time. Do you know why we have that coffee time and bagel time? It's not because we think there's an epidemic of malnourishment in our congregation. We offer that so that you have a venue to get to know people. And yet some of you don't take advantage of that. We offer community groups that meet in homes so that you can get to know people in ways that you simply can't on a Sunday morning. Numerous ways for you to do that. So here's what you need to do. If you're somebody who knows the Lord Jesus, I encourage you to make a list of those things that are keeping you from spiritual progress. And then ask in Jesus' name. Ask according to His will. Ask in the way that Paul outlines in what he prayed for for those that he wrote to in his letters. And Jesus promises, you ask, you'll receive. You seek, you'll find. You knock, and those things will be open to you. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ... You must begin a relationship with Him today. And He will give you His Holy Spirit and He will create in you the desire to ask and seek and knock, to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you how to do that in just a moment and then we're going to pray. But at the bottom of your outline, I have your take-home truth. Spiritual growth requires the humility to pursue what we need from God. The humility to pursue what we need from God. Some of you came into this room and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. How do you begin that relationship? Here's how. 
Realize that you're a sinner, like I am, like all of us are. Recognize God the Son came to earth to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. You repent of your sin. Lord, I've been going my way. I want to go your way. I'm going to follow you with my life. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that when we bow in prayer in just a moment. From your heart to God, in your own words, you express to him, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I give my life to you. I ask you to save me and take me. And he promises to do that and begin this process of transformation from the inside out in you. Let's bow. And as we do, I mentioned a brother who's in surgery. Some of you that are on our email list got uh, the email about uh, Brother Gary Hinsman being in the hospital the last couple of days. He had some gallstones removed. He's been in for these last couple of days uh, waiting to find out if they were going to do surgery to remove his gallbladder now or uh, have him come back later. He called me this morning and said at 1045, that would be right now, they're going to be doing a surgery to remove his gallbladder. I told him I think I'll be ending my sermon at 1045 and we will pray for you. Let's pray for him. And as we pray for him, the other thing we're going to do is thank God for how he has worked in uh, Pat's life, Christy's mom, and pray that this lung will take in her body and thank the Lord for this work that he's done. Those of you that don't know Christ, receive him now as we bow. Our Father, we thank you that we have the utility of prayer as an indispensable aid in our walk with you. Indispensable, Lord, because of our spiritual inability. Oh, but Lord, you have all ability. And you are perfectly willing, as a generous Father, not a stingy Father, a generous Father, to give us the things we need, not the things that we selfishly want. Help us, Lord, to begin to conform our prayers to the things that you have told us in your word are according to your will and in Jesus' name and for your glory and for our good. Help us to then ask for the right things and asking for those spiritual things you have promised. Ask and you will give. Seek and we will find. Knock and you will open the door. Thank you, Lord God. I pray that that's happening among your people right now and will happen this week and continually because we continually must persist because we continually need your aid. I pray, Lord, that there are some who are acknowledging their sin and the fact that they are outside of your family and asking you to rescue, save, deliver them. In your mercy, we ask you to do that. Save them. Give them your Holy Spirit. Begin this relationship now with them so that they can grow in you. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to you with the things that are happening in our life and know that you hear and know that you care and know that you are able to act. Thank you for our brother Gary and your work in bringing him to the hospital to identify the problem that he's been having and now to have this surgery for his gallbladder to be removed. We pray that it would be successful. We pray that the gallbladder would be removed, the pain would, would be removed. But Lord, we, we ask it for a much larger reason. We ask it so that Gary can serve you with renewed vigor. So that Gary can bring glory to your name in the numerous ways that he desires to do. And Lord, we thank you for our sister Pat and the work that you've done in her life this week. For giving her this lung and for the successful surgery and for the progress that she's making. We ask that that progress would continue, that her body would accept this transplant. And again, Lord, we ask for the same reasons, that she may be given prolonged years to bring glory to you on earth. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.